Mini episode 1247 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1247. And we are pleased to welcome back to the show a great guest that we've had on previously, Deborah Duncan from Houston TV, K-H-O-U-T-V, and specifically Great Day Houston. Uh, it is a show that has uh, lingered on. Most markets, including my own home market of Cleveland, don't really have shows like this anymore. It's really noteworthy when one of them could stick around and have success. Uh, a, a morning show with a studio audience where the, the newsman can engage with the audience and talk about the stories of the day. And uh, Deborah, as we noted previously on here, a uh, very, very gifted and awarded journalist uh, when you're talking Emmy Awards, Gracie Allen Awards, uh, Telly Award, uh, somebody who's really done a lot in this business and who has been covering some of the biggest stories of our day as they are disproportionately impacting Houston. You had, of course, the George Floyd funeral that was down in Houston that she covered. Uh, Houston subsequently has been uh, one of the hot spots for this unfortunate resurgence of coronavirus that our country has been experiencing in Houston. Some of the big stories of the day have landed right on her doorstep. And uh, again, as I noted to her off air, uh, I, I indicated at the end of the previous conversation we'd look forward to having her back. I hope that it'd be under better circumstances, but uh, at the very least, she's somebody who can shed some light on some of the top stories of the day, and that's a valuable thing in its own right. Deborah, welcome back to the program. A pleasure to have you on. How are you today? Thank you. I got to say howdy from Houston. Uh, <laughs> you brought a tear to my eye when you said the live studio audience because it, it's, uh, it's crazy because that's one of the things that we so looked forward to. Obviously, we had to cancel that audience. We did that in mid-March. But it's funny how many people like would email us and say, can we come back to the show? It's like, no, we cannot. If you have not noticed, we're, we're not quite in the red zone yet, but we're in the orange zone right now in Houston. So we, we've got about a week to turn things around, and we're going to have some real serious problems here. Well, yeah, and as far as that show goes, when you do have a studio audience, may I say, uh, Deborah, that uh, we, did, we in one of our previous conversations on the show with Bob Barker, when he was talking about different circumstances, he was hosting a game show at the time uh, back in the 50s, but uh, he felt like it was a real point of achievement. He made it through in one of his uh, contract negotiations, the marquee out front used to say, Free Donuts and Bob Barker. And then uh, the marquee subsequently read Bob Barker and Free Donuts. May I say, Deborah, that long, long ago with the success of this show, even if you had such a marquee, it would have read Deborah Duncan and Free Donuts. <laughs> Duncan Donuts, of course, that, that's what it would be, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I said, to, oh my God. I said to Bob at the time, I said, wow, that, that's, a, that's a status most of us don't ever get. Most of us would still have Free Donuts above us on the marquee, but you clearly would not, Deborah. And, uh, again, when and if... <laughs> You know, I'm sure, I hope the studio audience gets back in there soon, and that is, uh... Right now, it's just donuts, we're all going to need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 
Yeah, I guess let's start there, right? I mean, it's got to be a much different experience. And as, as I uh, commented on at the outset, that this is something where, you know, I go back to my childhood and there would be some shows like this. And this is a thing where, again, it's really died out in a lot of markets. It's noteworthy that in Houston, you guys have kept the format strong and it's endured all these years and you've reinvented it for the 21st century. And having said that, again, it's it's got to be weird and jarring to have that aspect of it go missing during this time. Yeah, it, it is. You know, it, what's really interesting is like we, we could do no interviews live in person. And part of the reason why the show is successful is that we're also revenue generating. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in the, the city that has the largest medical center in the world, so we have lots of hospitals, lots of doctors. We have all kinds of businesses you know, on our show. And so you know, part of it is just straight out entertainment. Let's have fun. The other part of it is our is you know assembling our business community. But it, this whole thing has forced us to have to do business differently. Like so many people, we had to pivot. We found technology that we never knew existed before. And so a lot of our interviews are done, as you've seen, in all the national sports and stuff like that. Some people use Zoom. We use StreamYard. But we had to find that stuff. But we had to scurry in a, in, a, in a hurry to get that stuff done. So, you know, it, it, it's often I've said that disaster creates community. And the things that will force you to go to the next level are when you're in tough times. And we've seen this in history over and over again. And we're in the middle of those tough times right now. A lot of people are having to just pivot and kind of figure out how to survive and then thrive. Yeah, it's really forcing everybody to kind of reinvent on the fly. And what you said about that, I can identify with the one thing that you said about uh, being in a market with such a huge medical presence because it's the same thing for me. Uh, Cleveland Clinic, known worldwide, University Hospitals is a very strong chain in its own right. So we have a number of uh, things in our own backyard here in Cleveland. And in our state of Ohio, the clampdown was early. The governor really set the tone on that, and uh, it was really where the, the, the conversation kind of started nationally about sporting events. We were going to have some March Madness games going on in Cleveland, and he made sure those got scrapped, and that was sort of the beginning of the shutdown of sports, which shut down a lot of other things subsequently as people started to take note. So our state has been one where the governor and the health officials have taken a strong kind of clamp on things. Texas. Uh, really was pretty much the opposite, and it's a thing where, again, I'm seeing subsequently now that the governor is saying wear masks, do this, practice the social distancing, but are people right now really kind of drawing a straight line between what's been the more relaxed approach of Texas relative to states like Ohio as far as the spike? You know what's so hard is that when we did the lockdown here in Houston, we did it. I mean, for the most part, people had adhered to what the, what the rules were. Mm-hmm. And so once you opened the door, it was like a taste of freedom again, right? And yeah. then you have a lot of people who have businesses, which is, 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 it's so difficult because you've got to look at overall public health, which that's so important. But at the same time, people say, i got to feed my family. I have yes. to protect my investment. So what's happening right now is it, it's easy to look around to people just driving around, doing business. It's out of sight, out of mind. We can't see the virus, and so people keep, and it all lots of, you know, kind of conspiracy theorists, you know, they're like, you know, it's not really that bad, uh, and when you start looking at the numbers in Texas right now, when you look at another thousand in a day, or another five thousand across the state, you have to take that seriously, because it, it's exponential, and there's a number of things that happened to the reason why we had that spike. Obviously, when you open back up, you're going to see higher numbers, right? But then you kind of uh, layer that with the fact that we had a Memorial Day weekend, where people were like, oh, I get out and I'm going to celebrate. Then you had uh, the rallies and, and the and the protests, you know, and so people got out there and did that. Then you had, um, you know, Father's Day, you had um, uh, just uh, summer activities and things like that. So people were kind of, I'm tired of this. I- I'm getting out. And unfortunately, what we're seeing right now in Texas, uh, in Houston, is 
a younger demographic who is showing up at the hospital and in ICU. Yes. And that, those are, of course, the people that feel that they are the most invulnerable to this, which, I mean, nobody is, ultimately. And, and one of the things, too, that, that's coming out subsequently here, and, and I, I say this to some of my friends who I think aren't taking this as seriously as they should, is, is that they're now getting things coming out about the after-effects of this. Uh, whether it be sperm count in men, whether it be things with your lung scarring subsequently, and even people that didn't have strong symptoms of this may carry lasting effects. So this is something that we're learning about in real time, and, and that's where, you know, as you say, uh, the, the real kind of super relaxed attitude among the young uh, is really, really, really out of place here, to say nothing of which, you know, of the kind of damage that they could do as a carrier to older, more vulnerable people. Yeah, I have a 35-year-old acquaintance who uh, went in, and it was like, I've never been in a hospital, I've never had the flu, I've never did. But what he did not know is that he's type 2 diabetic, Ooh. but he went into kidney failure. And so his kidneys are still not working. So you're, you're right about the lasting effect. And we are learning in real time about COVID-19. And that's the thing that, that really kind of baffled a lot of um, doctors. You know, you hear all kinds of things like, why don't we just go ahead and let it rip and have herd immunity? Well, it's not working that way with, with COVID-19 for what we know so far. So it's a little bit different. And, and, and obviously it, it's much uh, more voracious than just the flu. As people keep saying, well, it's just like the flu. It, it is not just like the flu. And there are a lot of things that we don't know. Exactly, and that's one of those things where, and you pointed out earlier, and this is this goes back to other discussions that we've had on the show, you're exactly right as, as far as where the balance comes in vis-a-vis -vis commerce and the economy and the fact that we have already created something of a, uh, a mini Great Depression, at least, in terms of how we're coping uh, with this, with the shutdowns and everything like that, that you, you cannot have a prolonged period of people being out of work businesses that are threatened ultimately having to shut down as a result of this. So there is that balance there, and that's where, uh, I, I don't know if you've experienced the same kind of frustrations that I have, the, when you go back to, you know, whether you talk about Memorial Day weekend or whatever, of the irresponsibility of people, the people that are getting out there and doing the unnecessary things, we're already going to have a certain amount of risks built into the system based on things that have to happen, businesses that have to reopen, but to me, one of the lessons of this has sort of been that humanity is its own worst enemy, uh, because our lack of discipline on some of this stuff is clearly making it so much worse. Absolutely. Look, we can't control the actual virus itself, but we can control it impacting our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, when you tell people to do certain things, that it's not that you can't be out, but if you are out, exercise and same caution. Like, I, I, I am known for my alcohol gun. It's just basically an alcohol spray bottle. Uh -huh. If anybody gets in my, like, this And again, and, and I might be kind of an unlikely person to say this as somebody who generally is philosophically a, a smaller government type person, 
But there is right. that, that phrase, I don't remember what court case it was for. I think this was from a Supreme Court case, something like, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose is, something like that. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's where we are. And like I said, I get it, I really do get it, but, but I think a lot of it, too, is that, you know, in psychology, sometimes when people can't really express themselves or they have other things going on, it comes out sideways. I think some of this just is coming out sideways. People are frustrated, and I get that. You know, and then you layered on top of that the whole situation with George Floyd and the other, the other cases, and I think people just, they're scared, they've had enough, they feel like they don't have any control over some of these things, and so uh, you, have to, you have to really dissect it and say, but what do I have control over? Can I put a cute mask on? Because it can be a cute mask, come on now. <laughs> In fact, I found one the other day that had a little hole in my straw for my, my wine, okay? <laughs> you don't get any better than that. <laughs> it, it's like, what can you do to work with the problem to automatically working against the, the, the issue. So it, uh, it, 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 it's so hard. But Houston, for the most part, usually pulls together. I think we're going to get it together. We've been through disasters before. You've seen the, the hurricanes that have, you know, just really uh, really hit our city very hard. And then at the end of the day, people will come together and do the right thing. However, I don't think people know right now. I don't think they know right now how critical this is. We're teetering right now. When we say uh, orange zone, red is the is the worst. We are like a really, really bright, bright orange right now. Well, let me ask you, because, again, I remember at the height of this, when, when all the different cities were looking at uh, fallback measures here, are, are you guys at the point yet of dusting off any of the plans as far as uh, pop-up hospitals and that kind of stuff? Has it reached that point yet? Now, what we, what we did do in the beginning, because we kind of pre-prepared, because nobody knew, right? We couldn't overwhelm a hospital sure. system. We had NRG Stadium with a Houston, Texas site, it was an NFL stadium. We had that all geared up and ready to go, and, and of course, kind of popped us in the face when they spent about $20 million to have that ready, and we never needed it. Mm -hmm. So, again, the deal is that people, I think, were scared in the beginning because we didn't know what to expect. And now they're a little bit more comfortable with this thing called COVID-19. And they're hearing across the, you know, with, with Europe, okay, and, and Asia, they're like, okay, things are, are, are trending down, so they're okay. New York's reopening, places are reopening. And I think people got really comfortable. And, and but I, there were a number of things that happened at the same time in Houston that really brought those numbers up. And not only Houston, across the country, really. When you look at the protests and things like that, people were just out. So, and the hard part about this is that, okay, so if we go back in, how long do we wait? People keep saying, well, COVID, when they say the second wave, I don't think there's a second wave. It's the same wave. All you did was kind of tamper it down when you took precautions, but it's just going to keep coming back. It's not, it's not going away. Right. right. And, and when you say a vaccine is about 18 months away, and then when you get to that, you know there's going to be people who say, I'm not taking it first. You won't take it first. I'm not taking it first. Right. Uh, so we, it, it, it's, it's unprecedented for us in today's society, in today's global market. It, it's, I don't, there's no easy answer. And we, we all want answers, and sometimes when people don't have answers, they just don't kind of go about my life. And then there's you know, the whole herd immunity idea that came up that, that some medical professionals were saying, why don't we just all get it and then move on? Like we did with the measles when we were kids. Well, this is not the measles and, and or the chicken pox. And the, the problem with it also is that they're seeing evidence that, that it does come back. So there is no real immunity established. Yeah, exactly. And you're looking at potentially seven figures dead instead of six figures dead. Mm -hmm. And for, for those who... Uh, again, want to say, and I, th I think it's really strong hindsight 2020, that the lockdowns were overreaction. I go back to this as somebody that was looking at this uh, well before there was mainstream coverage in this country of it. 
being alarmed at what was happening in China, seeing reports uh, of incinerators uh, for, for dead bodies, which would show that the, uh, the government stats were BS, which pretty much has come to light since that. I don't think it's even controversial to say that anymore. There were videos in Iran of people dropping dead in the streets. So I remember saying to somebody at the end of February, you know, the first, because that was when it was starting to hit Italy. I was like, Italy's right. the first open society that it hit. This is going to be the first right. test of how bad it is. And then we saw what happened in Italy, Deborah. So, I mean, to be scared to death in March, I think, was rational, because that was the first test case in an open society, and that just happened to be about the worst-case scenario. So what were we supposed to think? Exactly. My son is funny. He's 16, and that's his biggest phobia is viruses. Uh -huh. and, and remember, mm. he heard about, like, around late December, early January, he said, Mom, did someone have a virus thing in China? I kept saying, oh, it's honey, that's in China. It's not going to come to you. <laughs> I was trying to forgive him. And then he goes, it's in the United States. Well, that's Seattle. That has nothing to do with Houston. But, um, you know, he, he, he just had to try to make sense of it. And he, and he said, okay, so what we're, what we're trying to do is choke it, right? Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to choke it. And I think we, we let a lot of stuff slip through the class where we weren't able to do that. But we're in a modern world. We, it, it's almost impossible to do that. But if we're going to, to try and choke the virus, that means it's up to each one of us. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't be out, but are you out responsibly? And I was uh, sitting close to a restaurant one day. We were sitting in the car. We were watching how many people were walking in, opening the door. And, and no one bothered, you know, one girl, she opens the door and then she scratches her face and then somebody puts a mint in their mouth and it's, it's like, okay, y'all all touch that, 40 of you touch the same door. Yeah. Ah, yeah. I don't, if you really take COVID from the door, I don't know. But the point is, in my head, I've already established that I cannot touch anything that someone else has touched. And then, of course, you have the people wearing gloves. A guy with ballet parking college goes, it's okay, I have gloves on. Um, but your gloves have touched everybody's car. Right. What are you not getting about this? <laughs> yeah. Like, like you change your gloves for each car. So once again, I had to, you know, emerge with my alcohol gun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's making himself safer. He's not making any of you guys safer whose cars he's handling. Right. So, you know, yeah, right. that's a point right. of distinction here as well. And that, you know, so you, you, you've got one unbelievably mammoth story, uh, the, the story that I think is, is probably the biggest one of our lifetimes here. I mean, I'm one of these people that thought, oh, 9-11 was the before and after date, you know, but no, just, yeah. just wait until 2020, here we are. And then everything that has unfolded subsequently from that, and just as things were starting to open up a little bit, as you mentioned before uh, about the George Floyd uh, tragedy that happened in Minnesota there, and then subsequently just exploding nationally as a huge story with protests, unfortunately going into riots as well uh, in, in a lot of cases, but a huge consuming story. We're just barely at about the 30-day point of when it happened, and it feels like it's such a transformative thing already. You've got the funeral that happened down there in Houston that you guys were covering, and that was sort of the culmination of the immediate part of the story, it feels like. Now we're dealing with kind of the aftermath of it, so... Your thoughts on, yeah. on being there and covering it and, and, and being a part of that sort of end of the first chapter? You know, it was crazy because I, I, you know, he's to the most diverse city in the country. Um, mm -hmm. And we, a lot of our friends, we'd have conversations about it. And then someone said to me, they said, I, I just can't believe that this man that I didn't even know, that most of the world didn't even know, I cannot believe this man has caused all of this. And I had to stop her. I said, it's not like this man. So let's put you this way. When's the last time you watched a murder happen? Yeah. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, you watched a murder happen. We don't see that very often. We can see grainy footage, you know, and maybe a, a gunshot, which 
what happened with, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, and he saw kind of that flash of a, of a gunshot. But, but, but in this case, you know, if you had minutes that you were sitting there, and I, I kept watching it thinking it, it's going to have a different outcome. It's going to have, and it never, of course, had a different outcome. So it was a representation of, and then you start to see people kind of uh, have their arguments for different reasons. And, and something got out of control. Uh, one person said to me, well, you know, you know he was a, he robbed a bank. That's the reason why he left Houston. And I was thinking to myself, you robbed a bank, that's a good 20 to 25 years in federal prison. I go, really? So, oh, yeah, that's why I left Houston. So I Googled George Floyd bank robbery. Yeah. And, yes, George Floyd did rob a bank. Uh, but I saw what, what year he was born, 1904, and it was Pretty Boy Floyd. <laughs> back in the day when you couldn't could leave a city and keep your name and no one was going to find you. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of crazy misinformation that was out there. And then we saw people kind of go to the edge and, and, and the protest and things. And it, it just, it, it, I think that combined with coming out of the, the COVID shutdowns, People, I think, don't realize what a thin line we walk every day between a civilized society and anarchy, and we we just saw people fall off the edge, and, and it's 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 crazy. Uh, when I was coming to George Floyd's funeral, it was interesting to, to see the media from around the world, and there was a, a, a crew from Germany. Now, I was interviewing them. I said, you know, as you know, Germany has its history with this. And he said, yes, but we we've moved beyond that point, and we look at America as an example, and that's why we're here covering this, because if this can happen again, then it can happen again, and again, and again. So, uh, it was it was very eye-opening to, to be there, and to look at, not only, you know, you had your celebrities who showed up, and that was important because so they have a voice, but just the general public who stood in line in the heat in Houston, just to say, I need to remind myself of something, and uh, somebody I, I had interviewed, I remember interviewing um, Lady Bird Johnson years ago, and I said to her, from me and from my parents, thank you for getting that Civil Rights Act passed. And she said, Lyndon and I knew that we would lose some of our DSF and friends. But if we did not get this act passed, we also knew that we would lose the nation. Mm-hmm. And so here we are, you know, decades later, still dealing with this issue. Yeah, you know, and it's one of those things where, you know, when you look at this, that uh, they're really... And not to say that there has been no uh, whataboutism with George Floyd, because as you said, you pointed out there and an example of disinformation there, but uh, the fact that uh, it, it really, uh, by and large, the outrage over what happened didn't really break across racial lines, as it so often does in a lot of these uh, cases where somebody dies at the hands of the police. In that way... You know, a really sort of unifying moment and, and a, a moment of, I, I'd say, more universal eyes being opened. Uh, in it that, was humanity. It was humanity. Yes. And, and you saw it. You didn't hear about it. You saw it. Yes, yes. And that's where, and, and, and we, we had a subsequent uh, discussion on the show uh, about the protests there. Uh, you know, with myself and another one of our contributors, Jake Digman, just sort of talking about our own experiences. And I said, you know, I, for, from my perspective, you know, of growing up, uh, and, and, and growing up, uh, you know, in a suburb where, uh, Parma, Ohio, where the perception is if you lived there that you're racist because there was a lot of things that, that went down. We had a, we had a real bad mayor, uh, along those lines and everything like that of where I said I felt like what was kind of a shame about this moment is that I have sort of, you know, through my experiences over the years, listening to people, talking to people, I think gotten a little bit of a, a fuller perspective of things. And, and 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 how these things kind of happen, and maybe wasn't as shocked as a lot of folks were 
uh, about this. But I said, you know, that the tendency, what has happened in the last 30 days or so, uh, what, what I, from my perspective, a lot of what I would call woke white people trying to shame other white people for not being, you know, as whatever, I'm like, you know, this is, if it's about moving hearts and minds, that's, to me, counterproductive. You have a point where most people looked at this, as you said, with outrage, and it didn't cut across racial lines, and it's an opportunity to build on it as opposed to what I would call being divisive, and you're not woke enough, you're not sensitive enough on stuff. You know, and, if people are increasing... People, just, people want easy answers. Like, they want to take a statue down and say, there, that takes care of it. Yeah. It doesn't take care of it, too. You know, it, 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 people talk about reparations. That would not take care of it. It's much deeper than that. Yeah. And, you know, I, even... It, 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 I, I can talk about, you know, history, for example. Sure. When I grew up through school, my history of African Americans in this country, and I started school in Taiwan. My dad was in the Air Force. But my history was, I was a slave and then I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I remember in kindergarten, my friend looked at me because the teacher said that we were all slaves. And she looked at me, as I was the only black girl in class, she goes, are you a slave? And I said, I don't know, I have to ask my mom. Um, but that kind of sat in me. So it's like, you know, open up that, and we got to know our own history. We all got to know our own history. And I'll tell you, for me, to know that my dad's grandparents, a family of eight, they were sold into slavery in 1863, a family of eight for $800. Because I know that, I have a certain responsibility to my family lineage. I I cannot mess up sure. in my head. But then by the same token, I also remember in 1985 when I was covering this new drug that hit the country called crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. That stuff was dumped in, in, in impoverished neighborhoods. Gangs were set up to protect territory and make money for somebody. And... People just didn't realize, your 14-year-old little black boys in the neighborhood were not negotiating cocaine deals and getting coke in and getting arms in. And so we have to, as part of the answer, you have to get that stuff out of those neighborhoods. Yeah. You have to. And, and so it's a much more comprehensive plan than people want it to be. Get rid of the statues, get rid of the who's in the White House right now. And, you know, I had a, was one of the politicians who's in Congress said to me, this is what our problem is. And I said, you know, no offense. I don't get political on you, but it, it didn't start four years ago. Sure. So, if we want to point to one person in office, that's not going to fix it either. So, and instead of doing it from the top down, legislators top down, you better start at the bottom floor where those people live that life every day. Ask them what would fix the problem. Oh, absolutely, and that's one of those things, and I was having an off-air conversation today, actually, with another one of our contributors, and we were talking about this, and, and I said it, it's one of these things where, unfortunately, Language has been poisoned by its usage over a period of time, certain phrases. And I said, the, the, the phrase that's tainted in the public discourse is law and order because of a lot of the politicians that have used it over a period of time. But it's a thing where yeah. I said, you know, for somebody like me, uh, you know, I believe in law and order because I'm sort of a bleeding heart for the people that are the most affected by the lack of it. Like people that are in bad areas like law and order you know, if it's administered in the right way and there's not profiling or whatever, is humane to them because it could free them up from living in an atmosphere of a lot of crime and danger and that kind of stuff. And right. those are, you know, but as you, you know, this is a conversation that we're not sort of having right now because it seems to be kind of verboten. But me personally, I, I hope it broadens in a way to where we can talk about some of these kind of things here and where it won't be taken as being punitive because, again, the people that are the least, they're the, they're the most affected by the lack of law and order and safety and the conditions you're talking about of, of being around crack cocaine, they're the most disadvantaged among us. They're the ones who would most yeah. benefit from having things cleaned up. Yep. And, and again, it's, just, it's hard when a, when a solution is not tangible. 
sure. against statues, this, this, that. And I, I understand the point, but that there are much more deep, more impactful things that we need to address. And it's harder to do that because it takes time. It's not immediate. It takes time. And the sad part is, is that we're still taking time to resolve this issue. You know, on the back of the this economy in this country was started. It yeah. just was. And, but, but it's not looked at in that way. But, but I also challenge all of my African-American friends, and then we talk about this, that our children and our children's children and we know our own history. You can't say we didn't learn at school. We have to learn it ourselves. We really do. And I think that there needs to be conversations within our neighborhood as well, within our community as well, where what are we going to do? So oftentimes we look at things that were done to us. We know that. Now we need to do things. Instead of tearing stuff down, things down, we've got to build stuff up. And so it, 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 it's overwhelming. I, I hope that our legislators truly, truly take community-based people and take their ideas and say, what is it that we can enact right now? What is it we can do? What's the, what's the, what are the missing links in this chain? You know, because we definitely have a different story. Uh, obviously, when the Irish came here, they had issues. Italians came here, there were issues. But African Americans have a different story. There was, in law, we were not human, okay? Yeah. It was, you were not human. You were not allowed to be educated. You were not allowed to own land. You were not allowed to vote. You were not allowed to do a lot of things. So we have to, to rectify a lot of that stuff. And um, it's just, it's, it's not easy, but it has to be a committed, concerted effort. Uh, definitely. Very well said. And that's one of those things. And, and I have to admit, I mean, what you said about uh, the the economy, uh, you know, previously being built uh, you know, on the backs of uh, slave labor. I mean, I have to admit, I, I'm somebody where, like I said, you know, some of the defensiveness that I used to have because of the presumption that anybody grew up in my suburb was a racist. You know, I, I, I at one point being a little dis defensive, I think I may have been like, hey, wait a minute. But I mean, clearly now, uh, yeah, I mean, what you're saying, if you look at it, is obviously true. And that's a thing where... Yeah, and, and, and let me just say this too, that you say that because I'm probably somebody that might have used that phrase previously because to me it was synonymous with not judging by color but I, I, right, I now right. I get the distinction now I gotta be to see but not whatever okay yeah fair enough it I mean that's, matter. Yeah, yeah. You see it, but that, yeah, all of a sudden I'm like all of 
you don't see my skin color, but you, girl, you know my shoes are matching my dress, don't you? Well, yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, I, I think there's a lot of us that took it as, uh, you know, that, that to see is to judge poorly by. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, you make an excellent point that it's not the same thing and that we all do see it. And, and that's the thing where, and, and again, this is a thing where it's, and it's a little bit easier for, for me and you to talk about folks with our skill set and communications and everything. But by the same token, regardless of what anybody's skill set is, I mean, what we're doing right now with talking about this, having open conversations, that was one of the things we talked about on the show previously, that the more that people come to this with open attitudes, uh, really on, on both sides uh, of it, whether you're black or you're white, open hearts, open minds, talking about things, trying to put aside any kind of preconceived notions. Absolutely. I mean, the more people do that, the better we it will be. Forget, mm -hmm. We can't forget that things have gotten much better. Yes. Like I said, 1863, family of eight sold slavery. We have to admit that things have gotten much better. It's forward progression. You know, I, and at the same time, I will say, you know, I, I, every city I moved to, police showed up at my house because I was at my house. Mm -hmm. I, here in Houston, I had five police officers in the driveway. Five! Five! Yeah. Five in the driveway. And I was like, and, the, and I had to call work to actually have, and my, my boss come down and corroborate that, yes, that was my house that I just moved into. Yes. So, those things happen. What do you do with it? And for me, it was to call them on the carpet, and I did a story with it. Cause I have, luckily, I have, you know, a, a, a platform. And I said, okay, so this, this still exists. How can we stop this? How can we work with this? And to your point, yes, we have to talk about it. And it's not just one race that's going to solve the issue. It's all of us. Yes. And talk about it, and then let's figure out well, how do we how do we rectify this? Because our kids are not born that way. Sure. And then suddenly they start sliding into their thoughts of other people based on just how they look or, or, the, or the whole bit. So um, we, we, we got it. We have to talk, and then we have to do. Well, yeah, and that's the thing, too, where... I will say this, what you said about the progress that's made, and that, that during our previous conversation uh, on the show, myself and our contributor, Jake Diggman, we were talking about this very subject. I mean, it is to the immense credit of people today that when you look at something like, when you think back to Jim Crow, the signs for the quote-unquote color drinking fountains, etc., that it is so incomprehensible and alien. We have traveled in a span of decades to where we can't even believe that happened. Uh, and, and, and it's something that is completely different than it was today. That's not a very long period of time, a couple of decades. We can't even well, yeah, fathom the mindset. Forget. Yeah, that's, that was my parents. My parents were, lived a long life. They were 97 and 96 and they right. passed away. So that was their life. Right. That was their life. So it's not like when people sometimes will say, oh, that was so long ago, y'all need to get over that. It's like, well, it wasn't really that long ago. Oh. Right, right. Like, it feels that long ago, but it wasn't. And the fact that it feels that long ago is a testament to progress. The fact that we can't put ourselves in the mindset right. of the folks that were hanging up those signs and forcing back up the bus, whatever. To make it that alien within a few decades, like you said, in, in a sense it sort of diminishes the sacrifice of your parents who had to live through that. You know, and we tend right. to kind of forget that. But, but on the same token, the fact that nobody today can even fathom that that happened in a sense, is progress, because it shows that we don't look at each other nearly the same way that people used to. Yeah, we're appalled by that, that stuff. Yes. Today. It's like, that really happened. And, and, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was going to keep moving forward. This is not an easy thing to fix when you have, like, 400 years of something yeah. that's right. Um, and then, and, and we say 400 years, and that, that didn't end, you know, it wasn't 400 years ago that it ended. It was just not in our, in our lifetime. So, uh, but it, the problem is, is that we have to, take the next giant leap again. You know, I think in 1968, when people said enough, 
and you had the assassination of Captain Martin Luther King and Kennedy, and so it, it, it propelled us forward, not, and I think what happens too is we, we go to the middle, we got to the middle mm-hmm. of this, this fight, we got to the middle, and we got comfortable. Right. And then all of a sudden we went, oh, whoa, 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 the work is not done, the work is not done. We made a 75 when we need to have 100 and maybe some five extra credit points on top of that. Right. Well, it's a thing too, where to go back to something that you'd mentioned previously, uh, in terms of uh, a young man still in formative years, and, and as you mentioned, biracial, uh, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, what have been some of the conversations? That, I mean, this, this is, again, the most challenging period any of us have been through in our lifetimes for any number of reasons, but, but in terms of what you're thinking about as a parent through these times, what, what are the thoughts going through your mind and your situation? You, and I grew up, as I mentioned earlier, um, in a military family in a Taiwan Japan Okinawa and uh, we would walk on as kids and we'd go okay are you American so it wasn't what color are you it was are you American and the irony of that is is what, what is American a lot of people go oh blonde hair blue eyes no no American is everything sure. uh, but my son said he goes mom I'm really tired of this conversation he's like people are like why can't blacks and whites get along he goes I'm black and I'm white and I get along with myself enough said he goes <laughs> me, so why can't society be fine with each other? Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's never really um, hit us in the face. A couple of times he's had a couple of kids say things to him, but not really, because he's got friends who are, they're just, they're every different race, they're just, they're from, several from different countries, and they're just a great little group of young men, and it's just never come up, it's, it's, a, it's appalling to them. That's the good news, is that that is that next generation where they're thinking, what? Why would that even happen? What's right. the point? You know, and even even with I, I had to do an event for the, the gay and lesbian group here in town, and I said my son and his best friend were in the backseat of the car, and they always fight. And we said y'all fight like a uh, married couple, and my son just says, "Wrong well, husband." <laughs> so, and, and so the, the crowd. I said, I said do you hear what he said?" Before we would have said, "Well, you can't be a married couple and be gay." Well, today you can. Yeah. All my son was, was doing was just to assert he, he was trying to assert that he had power. I had explained to him that you know sometimes Mama has power. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, it, it just is. Attitudes are changing. That when we were growing up, you would have never thought, "Well, two boys can't be married, can they? Or two girls can't be married, can they?" And today it's like it's it, it, no big deal, right? So um, change is happening, and, and human beings are very complex. And uh, it's so funny to me how technology-wise, we are doing things that you, we could not even imagine. I remember the kid going, wouldn't it be crazy if I called you on the phone and I could see you? Oh, my God, that could never happen. And right. now, of course, all we're doing is moving away. <laughs> but, right. But we, so we could do that. But we do the with innate human beings and our emotions and our feelings and our psychology. is so much more complex, and it's going to take us a lot more work, diligent work, to get there. Well, exactly. And, you know, when you look at the social component that has come out of this moment in time, uh, post-George Floyd, combined with the coronavirus, you know, to bring it full circle, you know, we were talking earlier about how your show uh, can't have a studio audience uh, right now. Uh, Hopefully everything will kind of, you know, calm down in your town and the virus will recede to the point where you can. So eventually your show is going to get back to normal in that way, no matter how long it takes. But this is a thing where you know, and I have friends on different sides of the equation of believing this. I have friends who disbelieve me when I say nothing is ever going to be completely the way it was before this uh, ever again. There are going to be some changes that come out of things, whether it be, as you said, technologically, socially, 
how we guard against diseases, whatever. Has that sort of entered into your brain at all as far as going forward? When you're doing Great Day Houston and everything like that, how the show may be different in the future from what it's been all these years that you've been doing it? Well, you know, our company's being very conservative uh, on this, and, and you know, I don't know, I don't know if we'll have a live studio audience again. I don't know when that might happen or not. Because if you think about it, um, if we're again saying a vaccine's eighteen months away, how do you know everybody's had the vaccine? I mean, what are you going to figure out of that card? <laughs> so it, it, that's another issue we're talking about at work as well. So we are all working from home or in isolation. Like I go to the studio in the morning, I am the only one in the studio up there by myself. Mm-hmm. My director is. In a whole other room. My producer is at home talking to me in my ear. So, um, is, when is it ever going to get back to that point where we can all come back to the to the station? We don't know. And then when we do, do you start asking people, "Have you had the vaccine? When the vaccine's available? And is that a condition of employment?" So there's going to be all kinds of things that people are working with and and change. Like you know, it's like, it, it's hard. You look at the commercial market right now, and yep. there are a lot of people looking at a lease, going, "Do we resign this?" Because our employees are doing fine working from home. But right. then there are other people saying, I need to resign this because my employees are not doing well working from home. Sure. So I think it's going to change the way we look at things. Um, in every, you're, you're absolutely right, every facet of how we do stuff. I think every door needs to be, public door needs to be an automatic door now. So we sure. don't be touching doors. Right? Um, yeah. I think the Roomba needs to have a UV light on Okay. Sure. So is, everybody's looking at things differently. Face masks may actually just become part of our, our fashion. It'll show up on New York Fashion Week, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah. you know, <laughs> well, when it comes to the content of the show and, and, and a show like that, of course, yeah. in that format, uh, being a melting pot and obviously there being, you know, a lot of lighter moments in there in, in normal times as well as covering more serious things. And I have to believe that over the course of the last couple of months, the serious to fun ratio has gotten tilted in the one direction. Is, is there any thought in your head already about when it might come back to being more of a balance like what it used to be? You know, I mean, I've got to tell you that we really have had a balance. It's like we had, uh, you know, Jen Apatow, we had Kevin Bacon on the other day because the movie industry, they're more willing to do like these interviews and things because they know that their movies are not going to be presented the same way as they used to, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when, when a, a celebrity can sit down in front of a computer and they can do this, then it, it's, or, or even a satellite interview, it makes it so much easier than, you know, people coming flying in and putting them up in hotels to do these interviews. Now it's okay to do the satellite interviews instead or the open the Zoom interviews instead. And so we've done, we've done entertainment. We've done um, nonprofits, which has been great because all nonprofits are now now have a bigger voice. Uh, we do our medical community and our businesses. So, and most of them want to make sure you understand. Like, here is the protocol for us to avoid any you know contamination with COVID nineteen. So, there are certain life. What you see when you see our show in that sense is that you know that life still goes on. You're still going to have to go to the dentist at some point, sure, right? Sure. You're still going to have to go to these certain, these certain things are still going to have to happen. People are still cooking food, so we have like some really fun chefs who are doing some recipes. We've got great sommeliers who are coming on the show and telling us about some wine. So it's almost like a, a more direct way of marketing because we're not all spinning as fast as we used to. And now we're actually taking time to sit back and go, oh, okay, let's take a look at that. I had a wine tasting with some girlfriends all, you know, over Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> there was a book club, a book club on Zoom, you know? And so, um, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, sometimes disaster creates community. In the beginning of this whole thing, we just saw 
we just saw so much goodness in people. Because uh, that time we had ugly things happen, like with George Floyd, Ahmaud uh, Aubrey, we saw the, the worst of human beings, then we saw the best of human beings. We saw people whose restaurants were going under, they're not going to recover, but they cleared out their freezers, they cooked the best food they could, and took it over to the healthcare workers. Or they took it to people who, the kids who were relying on a free school, breakfast, free school lunch, and they took it to the neighborhood and fed them. So in that sense, you know that all of humanity is not lost. The one thing COVID-19 said was, I don't care if you're black or white. We know that some communities are affected more than others. But it said, I don't care. It's a great equalizer. Disease can oftentimes be the great equalizer. And it's like, so stop, realize that you're all human and that no one's better than anyone else just by, by the fact that you're born a certain way. And we, we have to get it together. We have to get it together. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the disease definitely is proving that and that nobody is immune from it and uh, there have been rich and powerful that have been felled by it and uh, there, there is no barrier to having that happen to you and that's that's interesting to hear and good to hear that you're still maintaining that balance that you're able to in terms of having the entertainment fa fa faction of the show continuing on because people are thirsting for that. I, I can tell you this and as somebody that doesn't even have a TVG account, uh, I, disproportionately, I have had on TVG a lot the last couple months because, you know what, anytime you can look up and see horse racing, you can convince yourself that the world is normal and we're not going through anything. <laughs> well, it was funny because for a while there, it still happened. You're watching TV, you're like, oh, the world is normal. Oh, wait, that was from 1978. Um, you know, I, we, we, have, we have like our throwback Thursdays or wind back Wednesdays, whatever. And we had uh, some comedians that were on, like David Wayans, and at the time we had Julie Andrews, who, who came in, she did her, her her book. So we would do this rerun, and people would call us and go, I cannot believe how irresponsible you are with that live studio audience. And you and Julie are not wearing masks. <laughs> and it's like, okay, did you see the topic that previously recorded, like way previously recorded? And I actually said, this is pre-corona, like so, uh, yeah. PC, pre-corona, pre-COVID, right? So... Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to bring it all the way around here on, on a lighter point here. We can laugh about that with the return of MLB, of course, uh, the Houston Astros, of course, are going to be an object of derision all around baseball for the team <laughs> well, thing here. Well, exactly. Well, it did. It did. And I got to tell you, from my perspective, I mean, uh, I, I'm an Indians fan, obviously lifelong, but I'm also a George Springer fan, not least of which because in my keeper league, uh, we can keep guys up to 10 years. I drafted him when he was still at UConn, so he's been my guy. He's come through for me. I have, I, I ordered myself a George Springer Astros rainbow jersey because the rainbow jersey might be the coolest jersey in the history of sports. And I will tell you, until this, I have gotten compliments from people left and right where I've been, where I've been wearing it about what a swank jersey it is. I'll tell you this, the week after the scandal broke, I wore it to my bowling league, and I mean, 
I, the secretary of the league come up to me, Rick. I can't believe that you have the guts to wear that thing here. People are heckling me in my bowling league. People are getting irate. So it, it's become a magnet for heel heat as opposed to saying, wow, that's the coolest jersey ever. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, he, uh, he actually has a set, his, you know, his bowl that he does to raise money for camp day. So he, he, he's such a cool guy. So you're, you are forgiven up there for <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've always been a big Springer guy. He has come through for my fantasy baseball team over the years, and that is much appreciated. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, there are, you know, well, we're going to have baseball coming back, uh, hopefully for a full season. Hopefully it can make it through these uh, times here. But, uh, again, greatly uh, appreciate your perspective in these times, uh, Deborah. It was, it was great to have you back on the show. And uh, I am certainly hoping that uh, when time number three for having you on comes, that uh, we're under better times. We can look back on this and say, look how far we've come. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pass forward, please. Exactly. Please <laughs> set 2020 and hurry up to 2021. But yeah. thank you so much, and thank you for bringing uh, the conversation to people. Oh, thank you for your uh, part in it, uh, Deborah, because uh, very valuable perspectives. And as you said before, this this is how – uh, society progresses is through conversations like this, open hearts, open minds, and great to do this with you. And we, we appreciate that a lot. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today for FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1247.